We're going to start in uh, Zechariah chapter 12. And we'll do this like a class, at least to some extent. I'll have you read and occasionally open it up for comments and questions. Um, so we're back to the blessings that are going to come in the Messiah. After having talked about the judgment of, through the unfaithful people of God in chapter 11. So would somebody read chapter 12, verses 1 to 9? word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong, because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So look at verse 1. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. We are thinking about the great, powerful, eternal God. It helps us when we listen to messages from God to reflect on who God really is and what he really does and how powerful he is. That's really important for us because what he's going to say is pretty amazing. And so to realize God is the God who can make this happen is good for us. So God's people, Jerusalem, were going to become, in verse 2, a cup that causes wheeling to all the peoples around. I think we go back to the a very common, especially prophet concept, of God giving a cup of wrath to wicked people. And they drink it, and they stagger, and they vomit, and they get sick. And they fall down, and they go into a coma, and sometimes die. You know, and, and that idea of this cup, almost like a venomous potion, is what God gives to the wicked. When Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, I think he meant the cup of the wrath of God against sin. And he was not wanting to have to drink that terrible cup of anguish. And so God's going to make Jerusalem to be this cup. So all these nations are coming against his people, and they're drinking her down to their own demise. You know, they are, they are affected, they are impacted and <coughs> cursed by the cup they drink by the nation that they are trying to destroy. They come to besiege Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes this cup that causes reeling. Or it's like this heavy stone. Imagine Jerusalem being this heavy stone, and it's kind of got sharp edges, and it's so heavy you pick it up, and you squeeze it to try to pick it up, and all it does is just gash your hands. 
it just it just leaves you a mass of uh, cuts and scrapes and bruises. That's the idea. When, when they try to attack God's people, they're the ones that are injured. He says, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, but that just means all the nations will be destroyed. There is universal opposition to God's kingdom on the earth, to, to God's people on the earth. You can expect it. Worldlings don't like God. They don't like the things of God. They don't like the people of God. So they're going to come against his people, but God's going to make it to where they're hurt, not God's people are hurt. I will strike every horse with bewilderness, his rider with madness, the horses with blindness. All these horses and riders that the nations are sending against his people, he's going to strike them mad, blind, incapable of doing any damage. And uh, God supports his people. He makes the clans of Judah in verse 6 like a fire pot among pieces of wood. Guess what happens? They all burn up. There's just a lot of different comparisons he uses to say God will defend his true people. He will make it to where their enemies will wish they hadn't because they're going to get destroyed by God, what he makes his people into. You know, have there been times that it seems like the, the forces of Satan are just stronger than God? It seems like they're always getting the upper hand. Well, that's just an illusion. That's just, that's what, God kind of lures them in and then lowers the boom on them. God clearly is in control. And ultimately, his people are victorious and their enemies are destroyed. And look at verse 7. He saves the tent of Judah first over Jerusalem. Now think about when, if you had a, the nation of Judah, you had these outlying communities in tents. Then you had the walled city of Jerusalem. Well, who would you expect would get destroyed first? Well, the tent cities that don't have a wall, that don't have even structures to, to protect them. But God saves the tents of Judah first. He saves the weakest and the most vulnerable before he saves those that are, are more, can defend themselves better. The feeblest will be greatly blessed in the Lord. So all of this is, I think, primarily talking about God's people in Christ. I think Jerusalem here refers to the Jerusalem above, and so he's saying, God's people will be protected by God. He'll save them, even the weakest and most vulnerable and the most feeble. He will protect even over those who can more easily defend themselves. So we've seen God's punishment of the wicked among his people. Now his defense and support of those who are righteous among his people. Thoughts and comments on that? This next whole section is probably the most striking section to me in all of Zechariah. It, it goes through two parts of two chapters, so we'll kind of break it down. So when somebody read chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And grieve bitterly for him on that day, the weeping of Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the place of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the other <coughs> clans and their wives. So, this is talking about people turning to the Lord 
for his blessing and renewal. This is a step-by-step process that lasts on into chapter 13. So it starts with God pouring out upon his people the spirit of grace and of supplication. God is the one who takes the initiative in salvation. He pours out his spirit upon men. And what do they do? They look on me whom they have pierced. The very one they pierced, they turn to look on and come to trust and depend on. But when they look on him whom they pierced, what then do they begin to do? Weep and mourn. Wonder what for? What do we weep and mourn for? Our sin, our guilt. That's exactly right. It's a symbol of, of the repentance. They, they, they mourn. And how intense and grievous is the mourning? Mourning like what? Like they lost their firstborn son, the one they've had the longest? Or like they've lost their only? Ah, thank God I've not lost a child. I'm sure some of you have. But I would think that while every child would hurt, it would be even worse if they were an only child. You have no other child to even love or care about or whatever. That would be so grievous. That's the kind of grief we need to have over our sin. It needs to really bother us. It needs to impact us. That's, that's a, a powerful lesson. The mourning, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. You know about that mourning? None of the rest of us are sure about it either. <laughs> we know that the very popular righteous King Josiah was killed in the plain of Megiddo. Maybe it's the mourning they did annually for him, grieving. He was only 40. He was a young king and righteous and godly and a good man and tragically killed. Not a wise move on his part. He tried to stop Pharaoh Necho from going through there, and he shouldn't have done it. But still, it was, it was, they really grieved that. Some other people think this may be a, a pagan festival that they did. And not that he's approving of that, but he's just illustrating. It's as grievous as they grieve and mourn and cry as much as they did in that pagan festival. That's a possibility as well. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, the idea is God starts out pouring his spirit of grace and supplication on the people. They turn to the one that they have pierced and look upon him. Then they start grieving and mourning deeply. Now, what's this idea of everybody mourning by themselves? Everybody's by themselves, by themselves, by themselves. Why does he emphasize that? What's the difference in individual mourning and group mourning? You don't have come from others. That's right. That's true. It's more personal. It's more personal. I think that's really the key. You know, sometimes if, if everybody's crying, have you ever felt like crying just because everybody else was? Yeah, there's nothing that makes you want to cry more than everybody else crying. But it may just be kind of mass psychology. You know, just kind of moved by the spirit of everybody crying, you cry too. He's talking about personal grief. You grieve your own sin. You're mourning for what you've done. This is not just because everybody else is crying. You're grieved about what you've done. You know. Are we trying to convert people 
by telling them how good they are, how great an asset they'd be to this church, how, 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 how you know, good they ought to feel about all they've done and all that, or do we convert people by helping them see the guilt and shame and, and weight of their sin and that it costs Jesus his, his life and his relationship with his father and all that. I mean, it's like, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the churches of the world, the evangelical churches often are trying to friend people into Christ, trying to make them feel good enough that they want to join. Well, that shouldn't be where we're at. You know, we ought to grieve where we've been and what we've done against the Lord. And our turning to God ought not to be with a smile on our face to do a favor to all these people in this church that we can help so much. It ought to be because we recognize the guilt of our sin and the need we have, and, and, and we grieve it. Think about Acts 2. When they were cut to the heart, they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? They felt the guilt. They felt the weight. So those are the first steps of turning toward the Lord. Thoughts and comments, questions in chapter 12? Michael. Yeah, we were talking about the filthy rags the last couple of days. Um, and sometimes we don't weep over our sin because um, I'm looking at, there's a passage in Ephesians about how our conscience has been hardened, we've been calloused, and we, sometimes unfortunately our hearts are calloused against God himself, and we don't put what we do in the proper perspective, and that could be the cause of that. We want to make excuses, we want to not take it so seriously, you know, it, it's painful to feel guilty. You know, it's, it, it, we'd like to take a, a spiritual tranquilizer or aspirin or something to make our conscience not bother us so much and things like that. But, I mean, real turning to the Lord involves real grief. You know, I mean, if, if my sin's not so bad and it doesn't bother me so much, then I don't need the Lord so much and grace isn't so good. Look at how he keeps going. Would somebody read 13 verses 1 to 6? In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. The fountain open indicates cleansing, pardon from God. This well that just gushes forth with pure water for cleansing. Because really, 
our whole problem, the central problem of the Bible is sin. And what we need is to be cleansed of that sin. And weeping by itself cannot make atonement. It can't cleanse us. Only God can. So once they've mourned and grieved their sin, he opens this fountain for sin and for impurity. Jesus is our fountain that cleanses us, that purifies us, that washes us clean. Now that means not simply a being cleansed to keep going in our sin. This is not to uh, cleanse us so that we can uh, have the right to uh, continue to transgress. But we, we, we change. The repentance is not just grief, but it's a whole change of life. It's a whole U-turn about face in our life. It will come about in that day, verse 2, that I will cut off the names of the idols. I'll know that they'll no longer be remembered. I'll remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. What do you think about? In Israel's history, before the captivity, what would have been the primary sins that the prophets condemned them for? Idolatry. I mean, that's got to be up there as like number one. I, all the idol worship, all the Baal and the high places and all this kind of stuff. And I think false prophecy. And what he's showing is, in that day, he cuts off the names of the idols. They don't even remember the names of those idols anymore. And that's, that's a real transformation. And he removes the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. None of these guys crying out, peace, peace, when there is no peace, and trying to heal the wounds of my people lightly, and that kind of stuff. And uh, he says, if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Now, believe it or not, that which sounds so radical and ridiculous is exactly what Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 13 said to do. He says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign of wonder and it comes true, but he says, let's go after other gods and let us serve them, then he should be put to death. Verse 6, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend, who is as your own soul entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him, or listen to him, or spare him, or conceal him, or pity him, but you shall surely, verse 9, kill him, your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death. Can you imagine that? You've got a son or a daughter, you've got a, a wife, you've got your closest friend who secretly entices you to go worship idols. He says, you be the first one to throw a stone at him to kill him. That's radical commitment to the Lord. You know, we so often let our personal affections and, and, and feelings interfere with our uh, firmness about standing for the Lord and his word. Well, the idea of parents executing their wicked children who are prophesying falsely is just, that's, that's just a, an amazing degree of commitment to God, amazing degree of prioritizing the Lord above all things. In uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The cause of Christ 
He demands loyalty to him that transcends family bonds. That's challenging. But that's the commitment we have to the Lord. He is our Father. And, and we love him. And we're committed to him. And so this transformation in these people is to the point where if even your son or daughter prophesies, false prophecy, you, you execute them. It will come about in that day, verse 4, that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. <laughs> this hairy robe evidently was kind of a mark of a prophet. They didn't want anybody to think they were a prophet. They make sure they didn't wear anything that made them look like one. And uh, he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. They would rather be thought of as a slave than to have, be suspected as being a false prophet. That's how, how transformed these people are. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Now, you remember when uh, they had that contest on Mount Carmel to see which god could actually spontaneously ignite the sacrifice? Spontaneously ignite the sacrifice? And uh, they, the Baal worshipers go first, and they start crying out to Baal to you know, burn up the sacrifice. And of course, nothing happens. And finally, Elijah starts teasing him. Well, you know, maybe, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to cry a little louder. Maybe, maybe he went on a trip. Maybe he's in the bathroom, you know. Maybe you thought about it. And so they start cutting themselves and doing all this kind of stuff, trying to get Baal's attention. <laughs> but that didn't work either, you know. But, but apparently they would do some cuttings and things like that as a, as, as a symbol of their seeking their idol gods. So one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, oh, that, that's why I was wounded in the house of my friends. <laughs> what kind of friends do you have that wound you like that? <laughs> but you'd rather people think you've got friends like that than to think you're a prophet. That's how changed these people are. So this is, this is like the gospel of Christ in Zechariah. I mean, you could preach the gospel in Zechariah right here, at least what some of the steps we need to take. He starts by pouring out the spirit of grace and supplication. We look on the one we've pierced. We mourn deeply our sins. We come to the fountain for sin and impurity, and we live a radically changed life committed to the Lord. Isn't that an amazing passage? Amen. You wouldn't think that'd be in Zechariah, would you? You know? I mean, it wasn't like Jesus and the gospel was a last-minute idea the Lord had right before Bethlehem or something like that. This is, this is what he's planned all along, and he speaks it very clearly here in Zechariah. That's just amazing to me. And good, good lessons for us. We need to take advantage of this opportunity to come to the Lord for, for salvation, and we need to live the radically committed, transformed life that he talks about here. Comments, thoughts, questions on all this? Okay. Um, somebody want to read 7 to 9? Will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire, I will refine them like 
silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And I will say, the Lord. And they will say, the Lord is our God. You know, one of the challenges in prophets like Zechariah is just figuring out what it's talking about. And every once in a while, the Lord gives us a big power assist. And this passage is one of them. The strike the shepherd in the end of verse 7, that the sheep may be scattered. Jesus quotes that, uh, referring to the fleeing of his disciples from, uh, or at least the gospel writers quote it, from the fleeing of the disciples from Jesus when he's arrested. So we know this is talking about Jesus. But think about what this says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate. Sin is so evil that it called forth the sword against God's beloved son. I mean, Jesus didn't die as an accident. It wasn't because the Jews were just too strong and he couldn't get away from them. This was the plan of God to sacrifice his own son on the cross, bearing our sins for our salvation. And think about it, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd. God ordered the execution of his shepherd, his associate, his closest friend, his son. You know, what can you, you can't, we have no understanding of the closeness of the relationship between the father and the son. And that's what happened. That's, that's the, that provided the salvation, the atonement for our sins. And it will come about in the land that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, a third will be left, and they'll be brought through the fire and refined as silver and gold is refined, and they'll respond to the Lord. So it'll only be a small remnant that are, that are blessed and saved in the Messiah. Um, but they, they will be. There'll be a remnant that will come through the fire, and they will be responsive to the Lord. They're my people. They'll say, the Lord's my God. So God is going to refine out a people for his own possession. Thoughts and comments there on chapter 13. I have a question. Are the shepherd and the associated shepherd? I think so. Good question. Yeah. Yes. I think all the stuff you've been talking about the past few minutes, the first part of chapter 13 is pretty hard, which part of the context is really harsh, standard God had against uh, false prophets and so forth. We can read that stuff now. Man, that is really costly, and it is. But this uh, helps us maybe with that a little bit. See, God says, yeah, I know it is, and I'm paying the cost first. I'm... I'm Strike my shepherd, my son, and yeah, I do expect you guys to repent and do the hard work of coming in. But really, I've done the hard work here. I'm the one who stepped in first. Good point. Yeah, God will never ask us to make a sacrifice. He hasn't already made a greater one. Yeah, that's a real good point because it is painful. Go ahead. Is this referring to what you were saying in Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14, verse 27, where you said, "Yes." Yes, yes. I think that is this passage. Yes. Very good. Thank you. Um, yes. Another question. Uh, only a third will be like spared. Is, is that, should we read that as like the other two thirds were like unfaithful? I think so. I think the two thirds are judged. Even the third that's spared, a lot of them are burned up. And so it's a, a lot of judgment before you come out with the ones who are pure enough that he can save them. Yes, Richard. What are your thoughts about um, in the end of uh, Zechariah 12, in the morning of those that pierced them, it immediately made me think of Revelation 1, 1 7, uh, 
that talked about uh, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. That's a difficult passage for me in Revelation 1-7. I have generally taken that as they will mourn because of his coming in judgment. They'll mourn because he's going to punish them. But from the analogy here, you could think about a mourning of grieving their sins as well. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for that. Okay? Um, so chapter 14 is just a radical chapter all the way around. Um, and probably one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. Not, that, not because everybody talks about it, but it, the ones that do talk about it all over the board on it. So, uh, but I think this is really cool. Let's, let's read some of this. We may not try to take the time and read all of it, but I, I really think this first five, these first five verses is worth reading and thinking about. So would somebody read 14 verses 1 to 5? Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. <coughs> and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravaged, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half on the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So this is a really dramatic passage. The day's coming when he's going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem, meaning his people, to battle. And the city's captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half the city exiled. You feel like curtains for Jerusalem, all these people against them, many of them already killed and exiled. And then the Lord comes forth and fights against them on the day of battle. And the Lord's going to come down and stand on the Mount of Olives as Zechariah sees this. And, and he splits the mountain in two. <laughs> you know, that's pretty radical. And half of it moves one direction, half of it moves the other, and the people are able to escape through the valley created by the split in the mountain. Now, people do all kinds of stuff with this passage. You know, clearly, I don't think this is talking literally. I don't think hardly any of Zechariah has been talking literally. You know, so this idea, people will try to come up with some kind of a literalistic explanation how Jesus is literally going to come back on the Mount of Olives and where the split's going to be and how they're going to leave and all that. I don't think that's what he's talking about. But I think it's a dramatic picture of the salvation God brings for his people. You know, he's got a lot of pictures of that. It reminds me so much of being at the Red Sea. And there was nowhere to go. And the enemy, the Egyptians were right on their tail. And God just opens up the way through the sea. You know, God does some really radical stuff. That was, of course, a literal thing. This is a symbolic. But, but it just describes the deliverance God brings to his people. And you'll flee as, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah. I don't know anything about that earthquake, but Amos mentions it too. So it must have been quite the earthquake back in the day. And, uh, you know, we need to see this as, as what Jesus did to deliver us and does to deliver us. You know, that, that, you know, 
I don't think we value salvation as being as dramatically impactful as what it is. You know, Jesus saving us from our sins is like him coming down on the mountain and opening up a valley by splitting the mountain in two. I mean, that's, that's a physical representation that is a, a shadow of the greater thing Jesus did in, in releasing us from our sins and forgiving us in, in his blood and preparing, preparing the way for our salvation. You know, I think we tend to think of that as, well, that's not so, that's not so powerful, that's not so dramatic. It's more so. This is just a, a, a foreshadowing of, of that great deliverance that Jesus provides for us. He goes ahead and uses a lot of other um, major uh, figures and analogies. He talks about in verses 6 and 7 that there won't be any light in this city because the Lord's its light. You won't even know when it's day or evening because the Lord's so bright you won't be able to tell it. He talks about the water flowing in winter and summer. Verse, uh, verse 8, you might think about Jesus being the fountain of living waters that you don't have to come back to that well every day and draw in a spiritual sense. He the, provides the constant refreshing. The Lord King over the whole earth in verse 9. I love verses 10 and 11, uh, the idea of the land being made a plain. And the idea is God is raised up, God's city is raised, and everything around it is lowered so that God's <coughs> kingdom uh, towers over all. There's no longer a curse in it. They dwell in security in verse 11. A plague against the enemies. Look at verse 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. Uh, he used their, they'd use their eye to find uh, breaches in the city where they could attack. He, they'd use their tongue to blaspheme God. So that, that stuff all rots. Uh, there's a great panic. Uh, there's a plague on the horses and all that comes against God's people. All of this is saying God protects his people. Yeah. In dramatic form, God is the one who saves, who protects, who defends. Uh, the nations go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths, and those who don't will be destroyed. And then look at the last two verses of Zechariah 14. I really think this is... Uh, powerful passage. In verse 20, And that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take them and boil, take of them and boil in them. There will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. The idea is in Christ everything's holy. There is nothing in the life of God's people that's not dedicated and consecrated especially to him. The, the bells on the horses, for crying out loud, are inscribed holy to the Lord. It's not just the, the cooking pots in the Lord's house. It's every cooking pot in the whole city is the Lord's. And that's, that's really our commitment. In, in Christ, there's not this distinction between sacred and secular. There's not this distinction between, well, this is, this is what I do for the Lord, this is the part I do for me. So I give the Lord Sunday, maybe, and I give me the other days. You know, I give the Lord 10% and the rest of it's for me or whatever. It's all the Lord's. Everything we have is holy and, and, and dedicated to God. Our lives are holy because we are God's people. And so that's, that's such a radical concept. You know, because most people in the world, they think in terms of just giving something of theirs to God. 
they don't think of everything that they, they are and have is God's, and it's all holy, and it's all dedicated to God, and we give ourselves to him. So that's a really powerful way to me to end this book of Zechariah. I realize we're de- we've been dealing with really symbolic, figurative kind of language, and it's kind of awkward for us maybe, but, but I think the more you see it in Zechariah, and then you see it in other prophets, you know, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel to some extent, Revelation, the more you get onto that. I, I remember growing up hearing people say, every passage in the Bible should be taken literally, unless it makes a contradiction with some other passage or whatever. <laughs> There's no, the, God didn't make that rule. You know, every passage to be taken as God wants it to be taken, and we have to study and work at it to try to understand how he takes those passages. And we look at analogies, and we look at how God applies these passages in the New Testament, things like that. So I think trying to see this as a graphic, vivid picture to teach us spiritual lessons is, is the most helpful way to look at this, and I think is what the Lord intended. Thoughts, comments, questions? We went through a lot of that kind of quickly. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I don't know if this is far-fetched, but the mountain being split in two reminds me of the veil that was split in two, mm-hmm. providing like, access to the most holy place. Like, this is kind of this place, access to God, in other words, right? Being sinful and then going through. Sure. So if the veil splits, you can go in. If the mountain splits, you can go out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. It's, it's mm-hmm. giving you a... a a way of escape in that case, or a way of entrance in the terms of the veil where we have access to God himself. Good point. Other comments and questions? Caleb. I think we just come full circle here from where we started. I'm thinking about, again, like going back to like the situation where Zechariah's prophesying, and you know, the city's still in disarray. We got some people with some hammer houses, but you know, there's, there's not much, you know, especially when you compare to what it used to be. And I think just, just looking at this and just looking at what <coughs> the promises that God is making, um, it's so it's it's so encouraging, I think, for them because it's a reminder that God is gonna make Jerusalem great again. And he's gonna make this to be a beautiful place where people from all the nations are gonna be coming up to fight against and those are gonna be destroyed, but others are gonna be springing up to join us, and this is gonna be a populated, beautiful place where people can worship God and be holy to God. And then I think about today, oftentimes, you know, there are times when I feel really good about the kingdom of God. I look around like, wow, this is amazing, like what God is doing. There are other times where it's like, oh, man, like this place is completely peaceful, you know, there's like, there's such work to be done and, and, and such a mess outside. It feels like the walls are, are torn down and the temple's not, you know, actually built. Um, but this, this uh, prophet, I think, is really inspiring because he reminds us, like, hey, well, he reminds us what we're working towards. Like, God has really incredible plans that he had a long time ago and he's finishing. Um, and we need to be a small part of that. What a blessing it is. Amen. Yes. Yes. I mean, this doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. That's right. And, you know, he's able to make something out of the mustard seed that we are. And so it's encouraging to be here this weekend. It's encouraging to get to know some of you a little bit. I wish I could get to know you better. Uh, but... It's encouraging to see brothers and sisters in various places. I get every once in a while to travel different places and, and meet more of the family. That's really cool. And uh, we'll keep going. You know, there'll be setbacks. There'll be discouragements. There'll be victories and joys. But we, we, we're committed to the Lord. Our life belongs to God. 
and continue serving him when it looks good and when it doesn't, when it's encouraging and exciting and when it's discouraging and, and demoralizing. Because we're committed to the Lord and uh, we're growing, trying to be more and more like him. We're trying to spread the gospel, trying to grow the kingdom as, as he wants us to, depending on him, relying on him. And so it's been really encouraging. I really appreciate you guys and glad to get to know you all.